Welcome to the 381st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome sociologist Kyle Cleveland from Temple University, Japan, co-editor of Legacies of Fukushima 311 in Context. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls episode at 5.30 p.m. Japan time, 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel confident suggesting yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 23, 2021, there are 5,158,642 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Japan reports 18,343 deaths from COVID. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Relatives of Virus Dead Question Japan's Stay-at-Home Policy. This was written by Yuri Kagayama and appeared in the Los Angeles Times, November 21st, 2021, Dateline Tokyo. Yoshihiko Takuchi, who ran a small restaurant on the island of Okinawa, told only a few friends he had the coronavirus. When he didn't answer phone calls from public health workers for three days, police went to his home and found him dead in his bed. He was among hundreds of people who have died while subject to Jitaku Ryoyo, or a policy of having some COVID-19 patients recuperate at home. In many countries, those with the virus stay home to isolate and recover, but critics say that in Japan, a country with one of the most affordable and accessible healthcare systems, people have been denied hospital care, and the policy amounted to Jitaku Hochi, or abandonment at home. Akuchi's sister and a daughter of another man who died at home of COVID-19 have started an online support group for grieving relatives of such victims. Japan has seen caseloads fall dramatically in the last two months, and the government has drawn up a roadmap to improve its pandemic response. A plan adopted November 12th of this year aims to have beds for up to 37,000 patients nationwide by the end of November, up from 28,000. That compares with more than 231,000 COVID-19 patients needing hospitalization in late August, according to government data. Many had to recuperate at home. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida also promised to have healthcare workers routinely visit COVID-19 patients with mild symptoms at home. Public anger over inadequate treatment in the country with the world's largest number of beds per capita is a factor driving such changes. Kishida's predecessor, Yoshihide Suga, resigned after only a year in office, mainly because of widespread dissatisfaction with the government's pandemic response. Speaking up takes courage in a conformist society like Japan, and class action lawsuits are rare. But Kaori Takada, Takuchi's sister, and others in her group believe their loved ones were denied the medical care they deserve. 
I had to raise my voice, she said. She's not sure what she will do. Thousands are following the group's Twitter account, and others have come forward with similar painful stories. Takada, who lives in Osaka and runs a small nursery in her home, was Takuchi's only remaining relative. They spoke on the phone right before he was diagnosed, but he did not tell her he was sick alone at home. Given widespread phobias in Japan about COVID-19, he didn't want word to get out. Takada said he was a gentle man and much loved. We're coming together, trying to heal, sharing how people have been treated so cruelly and perhaps helping each other take that first step forward, she said in a telephone interview. Japan's local public health bureaus responsible for arranging for the care of COVID-19 patients struggled to find hospitals that would admit them. In some cases, ambulances were shunted from one hospital to the next. A few makeshift facilities provided treatment and supplemental oxygen, but calls to set up big field hospitals went unheeded. In August of this year, when infections in Japan surged with the spread of the Delta variant, Japan's hospital systems were quickly declared stretched thin, even though it has had far fewer cases, COVID-19 cases, than the United States, Europe, and some other Asian and South American countries. In early September, more than 134,000 people were sick with the virus at home, according to health ministry records. About 18,000 Japanese have died of COVID-19-related deaths in a population of 126 million. No one knows exactly how many died at home. Though the National Police Agency, which tracks deaths, said 951 people have died at home since March of 2020, with 250 of them in August 2021 alone. Shigeru Omi, a top government advisor on the coronavirus and head of the Japan, the Japan Community Healthcare Organization, or the JCHO, has urged, has urged the government to set up field emergency field hospitals specifically to avoid these types of deaths. Japan's healthcare system is dominated by small private hospitals and clinics, and few inpatient facilities are equipped to handle infectious diseases. Many beds are occupied by psychiatric patients and by the chronically ill and elderly, and there are relatively few doctors, intensive care specialists, and nurses. Dr. Takanori Yamamoto, a critical care physician at Nagoya University, believes hospice care needs to be restructured to focus on seriously ill patients in designated facilities instead of spreading them across small hospitals that each have a handful of ICU beds. Resources were improperly managed, including widespread hospitalizations of people who didn't need it, he said. Public health bureaus are designed for research and are ill-suited to be gatekeepers for doling out COVID-19 care, he added. Problems are deeply rooted in a decades-old system, and Yamamoto worries that even if Japan manages to ride out this pandemic, it will be unprepared for the next one. No other nation turned away patients like this, even countries that had far more cases. The idea of doctors not seeing patients should be out of the question. If you're a doctor, you have to take care of the sick, Yamamoto said. Japan has done nothing. There has been no leadership, he said. Back in August, Yuko Nishizato, co-founder of Takada's group, pleaded with hospitals for her 73-year-old father to be admitted, but he died after testing positive for COVID-19 without ever getting treatment apart from medication for a fever. Phone records show he repeatedly called the local public health center right up to his death. It breaks her heart to know all he got were recordings. I wanted him to live to see his grandchildren. I wanted him to see a more grown-up me, Nishizato said. There are so many who have suffered the same way, and I don't understand why.
Okay, I'd like to introduce my guest for today. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to. Kyle Cleveland is Associate Professor of Sociology at Temple University's Japan campus, where he's Faculty Director of Study Abroad and Honors Programming. He's the founding director of the university's Institute of Contemporary Asian Studies, which organizes cross-disciplinary programming for public lectures and academic symposia, including a series of lectures and symposia related to the 311 Tohoku disasters. Since 2011, he's done extensive ethnographic fieldwork in Fukushima, interviewing nuclear refugees, prefectural mayors, military officials, anti-nuclear activists, and nuclear industry experts. He's writing a book on the political dimensions of radiation assessment in the Fukushima nuclear crisis, examining how foreign governments in Japan responded to the crisis. And I'm also really proud to say that he's my friend and he's co-editor with myself and our colleague Ryoba Shinea of the book Legacies of Fukushima 311 in Context, which appeared this year in University of Pennsylvania Press. Kyle Cleveland, good to see you. Thanks for coming on COVID Calls. Great to see you, Scott. This is a conversation we've been wanting to have for quite a long time. I I know. We've been talking about it for a while. I'd I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and give us an update on the pandemic situation there. I live in Yokohama, Japan. My university, Temple University Japan campus is in Tokyo, although I've been working primarily virtually for the last year and a half or so. Uh, Japan has just recently come out of a state of emergency, and there's discussion about opening the borders, although... That's been very slow and is still highly restricted. How is Japan doing? That's a that's a complicated question. I thought you had a very good summary there, much better than I could have done. And that kind of mapped it out very well. Of course, the question is whether or not those statistics are accurate. What's the methodology they're using to acquire and compile those statistics? I think there's no doubt that there's an undercount. And so we don't really know how many people have had COVID. Of course, there's asymptomatic cases, but also the number of people have died. Even that's not really clear. Where you are there in Yokohama, what's the vaccination situation? Do you have vaccination on demand or is it something where you have to still be waiting? They've opened it up to the point where now they're covering it through Japanese national health care, which for the PCR test is significant because that can be a couple of hundred dollars. Although on kind of a discretionary basis, some doctors have provided that free of charge. I was able to get a couple of COVID tests free of charge just because the clinic and the doctor I dealt with was willing to finesse that. But nationwide, they're now making this more readily available and and free. Part of that's related to the opening up of the borders. So they are starting to allow people in. There's a big backlog of people who have visa applications in process. And so the machinery of government here in Japan grinds very slowly. And the the vaccination situation, do you have a sense of what the overall sort of national picture is on that? They're up to just over 76% nationwide. That's age stratified. So that's people a little bit older. They're just now starting to talk about distributing it to younger people. Our university students were able to get it at our university. Hmm. Um, So, you know, compared to the worldwide rate, which is something like 40%, I suppose that's pretty good. But Japan was very slow in implementing vaccinations. Um, in June, just before the Olympics, they were at about 3%, which by far was the lowest rate among more affluent nations. And then that ramped up rather rapidly. And now they're at a place, there are some people who are vaccine resistant, not nearly to the extent that it is the United States or in some other countries. But um, 
it's just the process is much slower than what anyone I think would have anticipated. Given the fact that Japan has, you know, very functional bureaucratic processes and its its hospitals and everything else are, I think, some of the best medical care in the world. They've been very careful, very methodic. Oddly, ironically, maybe very risk-averse in how they deal with it, just trying to work it through pre-existing bureaucratic structures and not really responding to the crisis as a emergency that demands qualitatively different ways of organizing things. And that's been frustrating because, you know, the old canard, I think this Carl Sagan had said this, um, exceptional claims require exceptional evidence. You know, exceptional circumstances, I think, require exceptional actions. And Japan has tried to just stay the course with its normal processes. And I don't think that's been nearly adequate. Um, I, I should point out, I mean, both you and I are originally from the United States. You're living in Japan. I'm living in South Korea. I don't know if you've been struck by this. I certainly have. You know, I had friends and family, everybody I knew in the United States who wanted to be vaccinated, uh, was vaccinated by March. I also have family members who refused to be vaccinated. Um, mm-hmm. They live in Texas. And, and here in South Korea, the vaccination rate in the summer of this year was incredibly low. And now it's rocketed up to 90% of eligible adults have been vaccinated in South Korea. And so it just zoomed past October, not by October, it, it leapt past the United States rate. It's been um, a lot of cognitive dissonance for me around that. And I, I wonder, you know, your lens back on the U.S. in that sense, what are you seeing? I've been in Japan for some 30 years. I usually go back to the United States two, three times a year. I do recruiting for my university. And um, I feel increasingly you know, distant from the politics of the United States, obviously, over the last number of years. But I have a lot of Japanese reactions. Um, I had a Japanese student who studied abroad, and I asked her how she liked it, and she said, there's all this open space, and people just do anything they want, which I thought was really funny. And then the next time I arrived in at Trenton, and... um, Sounds like my childhood. There's all this open (laughs) space, and you just do whatever you want. I had that thing of a lot of random error in the United States. And, yeah. and um, you know, the United States isn't really, obviously, it's not a United States. It's, um, it's a half a dozen, three or four different countries divided by region and politics. Japan is a country roughly the size of California. I think it's 134th the size of the landmass of continental United States. Um, so Japan does have a more uniform reaction to all of this. And you don't have a lot of political activism associated with it, even though you did report some, you know, experts and media coverage on that. There's not a lot of agitation on this. People have just kind of accepted the policies. They've not necessarily been happy with them, but they've, they've trusted the government to some extent. So when I look at the United States, I, I see a very dysfunctional process. But also by the same token, you know, they, they did, were very much involved in delivering the vaccine. Um, you also had, it may seem a little counterintuitive, but the, the cacophony of political argument and, you know, contention, that might be useful in this regard because it clearly identifies the issues. People are, you know, they, they're emotionally invested in public policy. And I don't think you see that for the most part in Japan. Mm, Yeah. Thank you for that, for that observation. It, It is, um, 
just knowing where that line is, though, I was talking with law and society scholar Wendy Parmet um, in my last COVID calls episode, and we were talking about free speech issues. And, and you know, I think that, I guess, if there's a special political genius to the United States, it's it privileges speech over just about everything, which I agree with you completely, can help surface a lot of issues and a lot of vantage points. But I didn't think anything could surprise me anymore about the United States. But to see disinformation and conspiracy thinking weaponized by public officials who have legally who have the charge to protect lives and to see them putting that aside in favor of scoring political points around the strangest things like telling people basically to take unproven medicines or to not use masks or whatever, that that was something new, something I hadn't seen before. I don't think you really see that in Japan. For the most part, you don't see it in Asia. So often, I mean, on a whole range of issues, maybe it's not so meaningful to make comparisons between Japan and the United States or certain Western nations, but maybe compare kind to kind, you know, apples to apples. So if you look at other Southeast Asian countries and Asian countries, they've all done relatively comparatively well on COVID. You look at um, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, Thailand, um, Japan, arguably China, I mean, given its size and complexity. And what I see, and this is painting with a very broad brush, is that these are authoritarian states or maybe pseudo-authoritarian states in which, you know, you have very state-directed policy from the top down. People are given orders. They follow them. And they're also very rule governed. Japan is, you know, supposed to be a democratic nation. I don't know that the blunt label of authoritarian quite applies as it might have a generation ago, but you do have the legacy of that. One time I visited Alex Kerr, who's an authority on Japanese traditional culture and art. He's the author of a book called Lost Japan and Dogs and Demons, one of the real leading authorities on Japanese traditional art. I was with some study abroad students and I asked him, what are some insights that you could give to these American students? And he said, you have to keep in mind that Japan was dominated by military structures for almost 2,000 years. And it's only been since World War II, a couple of generations, that it's become free of that. But the shadow of that militarism and or authoritarianism still cast a very long shadow. And it's embodied in every institution, from the hospitals to the state to any political bureaucracy. And so... In some ways, that's you would think that would make it more functional. But you and I have done a lot of research and had a lot of discussions about Fukushima, and I see a lot of similarities between the way in which the government mismanaged the Fukushima nuclear crisis and the way it's dealt with COVID. I definitely want to come, come back to that in a minute. Let me remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today about COVID in Japan with sociologist Kyle Cleveland. Kyle, before we um, turn to some of those other issues, I, I did want to ask you if you would share a memory of this pandemic time for you, something you experienced that really sticks in your in your mind as sort of defining of these times. Well, um, I caught COVID here in Japan. It was exactly the same day that I was scheduled to take my second vaccination shot. I got Pfizer. So it was the third week of August, and I woke up that morning. I was supposed to get the second vaccine shot in the afternoon. I woke up with a fever, feeling really bad, runny nose, all of it. 
And I pretty much knew what it was. So I went to the local clinic of the doctor that I know, and I asked him if I should get it, if I should take the vaccine shot. And he said, mm, probably not. We should probably test you for COVID. And then the next day, I found out that, in fact, I had COVID. So I, I kind of see it through the lens of my own experience. And I know I'm projecting here. And, you know, this is a sample size of one. So I don't know how much you can generalize from it. But um the second day when they checked my ID, they, of course, they wouldn't allow me to come in because I might have been infected. So they gave me the results over the phone. And, you know, to be positive is to be plus. So they're on the phone. They identify my proper ID and then they start yelling over the phone. Prasu, prasu, prasu. You know, you have COVID. And um, that was a very interesting several weeks. My wife tested positive about three or four days after me. She had not been vaccinated, and um, she had a much rougher time of it. She spiked a temperature for 10 days solid, and, I mean, two weeks into it, one day she couldn't stand up, and that was scary. And so I called the clinic, and they would not allow me to talk to the doctor, which I found to be very annoying. Of course, I couldn't come into the clinic because I was, you know, positive with COVID, and, you know, for they didn't want me to transmit it, but they wouldn't even allow me to talk to him. And when I asked why, they said, rule, rule, it's the rules. And the way I process that is I think they were trying to manage their caseload, partly to manage the worried well, a lot of people who are anxious with, you know, certain symptoms that could be associated with COVID. But even in this case, I really got the impression was, don't talk to us unless you're in the ambulance going to the hospital. You know, they, they really just ask people to go home and to wait it out. And that took a lot of weight off of the hospitals and it didn't overwhelm the hospitals, so they were managing that, but it, it didn't really provide any direct care for people. The other thing I experienced through that is that even though they had talked about contact tracing, they asked me over the phone, have you been in contact with anyone? I had been with a couple of people. They didn't ask for any information, any phone numbers, any you know, mobile media devices to do that contract tracing. One of my friends, um, I, I guess I shouldn't say who you know, Scott, um, self-quarantined out away from his family for 10 days because he didn't want to pass it on to his child. And um, it was just interesting to see them going. It seemed to be going through the motions. I, I don't know how seriously they're really taking this. They would call twice. Well, they, they gave me software that I was supposed to put on my phone. I wasn't feeling well. I didn't do it. They didn't ever follow up on that, but they called me twice a day. One of them eventually became a computer call and they were just going down a checklist. You know, are, do you have respiratory distress? Do you have a fever? Are you eating? Have you been in contact with other people? And then about four or five days into it, they started delivering some food. Um, that was, and that was interesting. Why a four or five day delay? But they really kept me away from the clinic and also from the hospital. So, you know, if you think about the demographics of Japan, this is a country where you have a lot of people who co-inhabit three generations living in the same home. This country that has hundred year leases on homes and there's a lot of elderly people, you know, it has the, maybe the longest living people in the world are Japanese in the, into their mid eighties. And so you do have a lot of elderly people living with their families. And so if any family member, you know, is positive for COVID, they're likely to transmit it to other people within the family. So I don't know if that was really good. 
you know, crisis mitigation. But it did say something about how they were trying to manage it politically, bureaucratically, maybe not with looking at what was in the best interest of patients on an, on an individual basis. And people accepted that for the most part. There have been some experts, as you quoted, who've spoken out against it, but people have just kind of taken it. And so, I mean, I'll, I'll try to fill you in on a little details and you could interrupt or um, ask questions as I go here. But Japan imposed a state of emergency, which was a lockdown, but it wasn't really a lockdown. It's not enforceable by law. This dates back to an archaic law at the end of the World War II during the U.S. occupation that the state could not impose restrictive actions on its citizens except under, well, even under exceptional circumstances. So it was kind of a strong recommendation without a lot of enforcement provisions or teeth in it. So, for instance, um, they asked various businesses to close their, not to serve alcohol and to close down. Most of them did. But some businesses made the calculation that rather than take the compensation offered by the government, they would just stay open. The government didn't do anything to stop them. And there was certainly no invasive policing for people who are out and about. Um, I live right next to a fire station. So it's been very annoying for the last six months that 6.30 in the morning with sirens blazing, they go out in kind of a, I guess, a show of symbolic force, like we're here and we're paying attention. But they've actually been much less invasive than you might think. But they don't need to be because people follow the orders, you know, because they've been told to and they've internalized those rules. So you don't have to enforce the rules if people are going to follow them on their own. That's what I wanted to ask you. So, I mean, so there's a lockdown suggestion, <laughs> yeah. uh, the way you're describing it, but it, it actually, it worked more or less the way you see it. Yeah. Well, I suppose um, less social interaction obviously is important. I mean, Japanese wear a mask and have been wearing masks during, you know, seasonal influenza for many years. Everything was ramping up to the Olympics and I remember going through Yokohama Station, which is a large hub, and they had re they had really refurbished and put in a brand new mall, and it was quite busy. This is a month or two before the Olympics, maybe June. And I really was paying attention to this. I walked all through that station. There's probably well over 100,000 people transferring through that station. I didn't see a single person, and I was looking for it, not a single person not wearing a mask. And you would see people out walking on the street. You'd see people driving in a car by themselves wearing a mask. And so there's almost 100% mask compliance, which certainly had something to do with it. Japanese also very, you know, maybe they have a functional form of OCD at a national level where they're very hygienic, you know, um, alcohol spray is at every business. And, and there's a lot of kind of self-policing of peer pressure, certainly. But... um the state wasn't really invasive. And also, there was no real national leadership. I mean, arguably, this cost Prime Minister Abe his job. He, in his own poor health, maybe from the stress associated with this, um, he eventually transitioned out. And, you know, so we have the same political party in power, but Kishida's the new prime minister. So in comparison to the United States, for instance, the United States has the Centers of Disease Control, which is centralized health um, system. Japan has no national organization comparable to that. And so they have medical consortiums in which there's networks of doctors who deal with each other on a professional level. 
but they didn't have a lot of top-down directives. And so I think what the state would just relied on was for individual clinicians and hospitals to deal with this at a local level, not a national level, enforceable through some national unified policy. And that's interesting. So a colleague of mine, her name is Sachiko Horiguchi. She's a sociologist at my university. She's been working on a research project for the last year with a group of five anthropologists and five medical clinicians. I have a podcast like you called iCast. We have our Institute of Contemporary Asian Studies. It's kind of an alliteration on that. The podcast or multimedia channel is i-cast, Temple University of Japan, or TUJ. And one of the podcast interviews is with Sachiko Horiguchi and her friend, who's a, a medical doctor, Sachiko Ozone, who's at Scuba University. And what they related to me was very, very interesting. Their view of this was that the doctors were more or less abandoned by the state and the government. They weren't really provided with personal protection equipment. They talked about coming home and removing their clothes and even self-isolating within their own home, but that they just relied on people to work it out with patients individually. And so in a way that's functional given Japan's arrangement, Japan has national health insurance, which is readily available, quite inexpensive. And if you have children, children are, are free. And so like where I live in Honmoku in Yokohama, there are probably 15 medical clinics around here within a 10 minute walk. And the doc one thing that you have in that kind of arrangement is a local clinician or doctor who has a personal relationship, not only with an individual, but with the entire family. So maybe they've been dealing with that person for many years and they have a personal relationship. And so I think people are going in and getting care, getting like um, maybe respiratory medicine or asthma medication or various things that might be effective in addressing the symptoms. And so at, at kind of an individual, at a lower tier level, there was a lot of activity going on, but it's not unified. Let me again just re remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Kyle Cleveland today, and I want to uh, underline, uh, give a quick shout out to also his podcast and the activities at Temple University of Japan. And this, you can find that at uh, ICAS, icas.tuj.ac.jp. And check out the podcast there and the research that uh, Kyle's been leading. Um, and, and in some ways, parallel to what I've been doing with, with COVID Calls. And um, there's a lot in what you were just just describing there. I want to circle back to first of all. I just want to say I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad <laughs> yeah, your wife yeah. is okay. Thank yeah. you for sharing that experience. Which I don't know. You know, when you narrate it like that, there are various moments in it which, to me, sound just absolutely terrifying. And and yeah, there's the stress of that which people have described with COVID that they. Yeah. You sort of trust your body, but you're also seeing what's happening in news media and you're wondering at any moment if you're going to not be able to breathe. And um, It's frightening. That's rough. I mean, I have, um, I have asthma. I've had chronic bronchitis since I was five years old. 
And so I was very worried about respiratory distress, which I never really had. Although three weeks into it, maybe a month where I thought I was past it, and it, it seemed that I was, I had a couple of days of pretty significant respiratory distress that really panicked me. I don't think that I had long COVID. I don't know what that means. I don't know how you put parameters on that. I think my wife did. Um, and, you know, and there's an interesting aspect of this, Scott. You'll know what I mean on this, but there, there definitely is a stigma associated with having COVID. I noticed when I would tell people, they would have a kind of intuitive body language reaction, a kind of, and this is long after I was over COVID, so, or even virtually, that kind of like, I'm telling some deep, dark secret. And I've even had people say things like, oh, thank you for sharing such personal information. And um, I think that stigma is very real. And I think it also had an impact upon medical care in here in Japan. So I'm going to tell you a story here that I have a hard time abstracting from it and verifying just exactly what it signifies. But the local doctor that I deal with is quite erudite and international. He lived and worked in New York City at Presbyterian Hospital for four years. He was a visiting professor at Columbia University, completely bilingual. And I've known him for several years. And I was not exactly doing research, but I, every time I would go into the clinic, I would ask him as COVID was starting to amplify. He really thought that this was not an issue for Japan because he believed that Japan had latent immunity. There is an argument here, kind of has the the smell, if not of racism, of some sort of you know biological um, nativism, that Asian people are somehow biologically different, that they've been exposed to circulating influenza for centuries, and that they therefore somehow they carry some latent immunity, and that may be the case. Good luck demonstrating that. I mean, there are some researchers that have worked on that, but it's really hard to be able to verify that. But um, when I was, I got tested twice. And the first time I got tested, he said, okay, so here's the deal. You have two options. You can have this covered by Japanese national health care, in which we have to inform the government. Or you can pay for it yourself, which would cost about $200, $300. And so you'd get it on one, you get the test on one day. We get the results back the next day. And then within a few hours period, you would have to indicate to us, do you want to put this on the books and have it covered by national health insurance, in which case it would be free, but they would have to convey that information to the government, or do you want to just pay for it on your own, in which case those statistics never make it out of this office. And I really was shocked at that to the point where I said, wait a minute, tell me all of that again. And how common is this? And he said, well, I can't speak for other doctors. And I asked him why, and he said, well, you know, I mean, you have these intensive communities that are, you know, Japan does have this familial ideology that everyone's kind of part of one big family. If you have a small business and it becomes known that someone would have COVID, that could dramatically affect that business, might shut it down. Um, in the schools, if it was known that a kid had COVID or a family had it, they would be maybe withheld from the school. There's a Tremendous problem with bullying um, long before this issue ever came up with COVID. And there's a concept for this in Japan. It's called kegade. It's a Shinto notion that means ritualized pollution. It's kind of a taboo associated with contamination or disease. And 
I was kind of jokingly referring to this as a Kagate tax, that if you are tested positive, we will conspire with you to not make this public. And on the one hand, I was outraged by that. On the other hand, I kind of appreciated the option because initially I didn't want to really tell people about this. Um, so, of course, the implications of that are we have no idea what the actual numbers are in Japan because they're not necessarily mandated by law. Or if they are, the reporting is not enforced. How, how do they enforce it? So that, again, I, I want to be cautious and extrapolating from that to say it represents the common experience. But that was my experience. And it was pretty remarkable. And it made me really doubt the statistics. The other issue is, if you look at the mortality rate, Japan has very low mortality rate, except that they don't really do cause of death testing. So if a person dies of something that is clearly respiratory based, maybe they would go to that trouble. In Japan, they cremate bodies. They don't get autopsies for most people. And so, again, I think without a doubt, there's an undercount. And um, not only due to asymptomatic disease, but even to the level of mortality. And if a person doesn't go into a hospital and get on the books as having suffered from COVID, then they can come in under the radar and it never gets counted towards the official statistics. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, again, I think this is where I, I agree with what you said earlier, you know, comparing Japan to the United States or South Korea to the United States is to me only vaguely illuminating. I think much more interesting comparisons, uh, across East Asia and, and, you know, colleagues of mine here, students have described to me the early days of the pandemic. In South Korea, of course, the government here took an extremely aggressive um, test, track, and trace. Uh, uh, you know, it became a national project. Right. And um, but the news media reporting, um, there was a sense. This is the way it's been described to me that um, those who became infected had really let down <laughs> their yeah. family and let down the country. And, um, and, you know, this, and I think it's particularly confined to that earlier period as well, when the numbers were incredibly small and there were a few outbreaks in local places often associated with churches or, uh, with nightclubs around the U S military base and things like that, which adds another sort of dimension to it. But, um, I don't think we see that as much right now. Of course, I'm, I'm challenged in my capacity. I don't read you know, I'm, I'm limited in what I can can understand because of linguistic failures on my own part. But I, it's um, there's some interesting synergy there with what you're describing. Uh, this mm -hmm. this sense of a um, and I want to generalize to the whole society, but that particularly during that early kind of sense making phase of the pandemic, that um, that there was a strong sense of of taboo or failure um, placed on individuals who were suffering. Right. Uh, Harder to make that argument when it burns through the population and everyone's been exposed to it. Absolutely. You know, and you have more yeah. and more people within your social network that you know have had it or if you've had it yourself. What I told my students, and I know I'm projecting from my own experience, I was teaching, I'm teaching a course this semester on risk culture. So it was, it was a little odd starting that semester while suffering from COVID and <laughs> just trying to hold it together. Yeah, you it's know? like, you, that's like really taking it too far, Professor. I know, a little that participant observation to the extreme. But I said to them, look, everyone's going to have an encounter with COVID. You're going to be asymptomatic. You're going to have had a vaccine, in which case your symptoms will not be enough to hospitalize you. You're going to be unvaccinated, in which case you might have a really hard time with it. But I think eventually virtually everyone's going to be exposed to it. 
And we've seen that. The problem is with asymptomatic cases, you just can't measure it. I think the Lancet some months ago did a study that found that, now this is months ago, that one third of Americans they believed had had COVID, even though the numbers were far below that, because how do you verify asymptomatic cases? Right, right. Well, we'll never know in the United States because they never really tried. Uh, well, in Japan, um, they've never really done much comprehensive testing. Mm -hmm. And here I see a parallel, a very direct parallel with Fukushima, that early on they decided they were going to, I mean, this is, I don't know, this is policy, but it's also rhetoric, that they were going to do contact tracing rather than testing. Under the rationale that testing wasn't readily available, they couldn't do really widespread pervasive testing. And then arguably, if you're not testing everyone constantly, then a test is only good for a few days before it starts to time out. Someone did a study, some scholars did a study about what were the criteria necessary to be able to reopen American universities with some confidence. And they argued that every university student had to get tested three times a week, every week. And when they did the math, they calculated that under the American healthcare system, each COVID case involving hospitalization would um, incur about a $39,000 expense. And so when they did the, the math, it was worth it to, you know, test people three times a week. And I think they've done that at some, Yale University was doing it. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of universities that have a multi-billion dollar endowment were doing that kind of testing. And so, you know, I think they just kind of gave up on the notion of doing widespread testing at a time when doing that would have been very helpful for them to be able to stage the Olympics in a different mode. So, you know, given the the need that they had, both in terms of nation branding, public messaging, and also just to be able to hold the Olympics in a safe way, it's really peculiar that they didn't more aggressively go after testing, which could have given them some assurance and allowed them to deal with it. You know, having that information is better than not having it. And I think they just walked away from it. They gave up on it. That happened in Fukushima. Now, I'd have to get deep into the weeds on this, and we don't have a lot of time, but you'll recall that in the first few days of the disaster, when the radioactive plume escaped the Daiichi plant up in Fukushima, that went across local communities that we visited, places like Namie and Futaba and Kawuchi and Manamisoma. And the government had a technical emergency management assessment system called SPEEDY, which is a system for consequence management. It's a radiation measuring device, basically an atmospheric plume modeling technology, kind of like a weather pattern. Like if you get radioactive smoke or anything up in the air that's toxic, you measure where the wind blows that. And they had that and they never used it. And the rationale that they gave for that was that they couldn't use it because they had no certainty in the statistics. And if they weren't going to be 100% sure, they wouldn't use it at all. Now, of course, in that case, the only information they needed to convey to the local people in those communities was the wind's blowing more or less in this direction. And so the tragic case of the village of Namie is that they evacuated their villages right directly into the path of the worst radioactive plume. And over the years, those people are likely to suffer, suffer the consequences. But a similar thing, thing happened, I think, with COVID where they had some available technologies that they just simply refused to use because they couldn't have absolute certainty. And, you know, it's a classic case of like perfect being the enemy of the good, that if you don't have comprehensive, completely reliable information, then no information is better at all. So I think 
in a manner of speaking, I don't know if this was strategically conscious, they were using ambiguity to their advantage. But let me ask you, there's a couple of layers to that I want to I want to go a little deeper with. One is just observing this from the outside with a you know, a project like the Olympics mm-hmm. already being planned for over a decade, a multi-billion dollar mm-hmm. investment, the eyes of the world. And this was supposed to be the post-Fukushima Olympics. This is supposed to be the demonstration of victory over disaster through the use of, of Japanese cultural power, mm-hmm. uh, economic power, technological power, and, and, and everything. And, and of course, you, as you've well documented, uh, outside of the Tokyo metropolitan area, that's rankled a lot of people who didn't think it was time to give up on Fukushima and, and turn yeah. eyes back on, on the metropole, but that's what happened. And then, but I have to, I mean, with that on the table, it really seemed to me from the outside, I just couldn't understand. They didn't, like, just as you said, they didn't seem to be very aggressive about it. The public messaging outside of Japan was was really, uh, one day it seemed to be everything is fine, we'll be happy to host the world, and then the next day there seemed to be crisis meetings. Uh, it was just really hard to parse from the outside. And I remember having conversations with Japanese colleagues and just saying, what's mm-hmm. what's happening? Are they Are they treating COVID as somehow separate from the Olympics? I mean, how can you possibly do that? But that's what it seemed like to me. Well, even during the Olympics, they were putting journalists on buses with no protection after isolating them. Um, they were having them intermingle with athletes, um, which were under much stricter protocol than the journalists. A lot of it just made no sense. I think part of it was the politics of the geopolitics of Asia where, you know, the Beijing Winter Olympics are coming almost immediately after the Japan Summer Olympics. And so I think there was a lot of posturing involved in that. I, I've thought, if you go back to the early days where quite literally COVID arrived to the shores of Japan on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, the way that the state dealt with that was just unbelievable. They left people on that ship to cross-contaminate each other and didn't evacuate them off that ship for days. And then when they did, they allowed them to get on public transit and just go out into the society. Now, if you know where that area was, where that, that pier is, and, and I live in Yokohama, so I know it quite well, they could have easily put up um, military hospitals or temporary hospitals. Or they could have evacuated those people into the local hospitals because there was no case rate of COVID at that time. But then I think they didn't want the hospitals to suffer the associated stigma of being a COVID hospital, which would freak everyone out. Um, but there's a lot of things that they could have done that they didn't do. Um, there was a kind of an infamous case where an epidemiologist from infectious disease specialist from Kobe University named Iwata, he had gone on that ship and was outraged to see that there were no demarcation zones between those who were infected. There was no red zone. You had staff that were delivering food to doors that were not using protective actions. It was a mess. And you would think that under those circumstances, I mean, you could never have a more narrowly circumscribed control case than a bunch of people on a cruise ship. You know, it's a completely controlled environment. And if you can't control it there, then how can you control it when it's set loose in the society and wandering out, you know, among every interaction with people in the society? Let me ask you kind of the inverse of what we've just been talking about. So you were, I think, making some really interesting parallels between the speedy system, uh, sort of opportunity lost in terms of diagnostic and, and 
emergency response, to not use a system that had been built um, in in the wake of the radiation release. But the, I want to know what you think about the opposite of this, which is, you know, how did people see the Fukushima um, memorial, the anniversary, the 10th anniversary, in light of COVID? Did, did, did somehow people, you know, that memory is 10 years old now. And, I, and again, I tried to follow it from a distance. I had wanted to be there, but couldn't be. Mm -hmm. How did, did people somehow remember Fukushima differently because that memory came through the time of COVID? I don't think they remembered Fukushima at all. Mm. I mean, you and I were very attuned to this because the book that we co-edited came out. It was delayed somewhat by COVID and, you know, the supply chain issues. But eventually, what, that came out in May, um, you know, a few months before the Olympics. And... It seemed that I had really thought that, you know, it was going to be the Fukushima Olympics. In fact, arguably, Japan doesn't get the Olympics without Fukushima. And when they were pitching for it, they branded it as the Reconstruction Olympics. You know, this really laudatory narrative of resiliency and Japan has overcome this major disaster. So it's kind of a consolation prize, maybe a sympathy vote. But often the International Olympic Committee does that kind of nation branding or nation building and that political messaging was inscribed in it from the very beginning. And then Fukushima was scarcely mentioned. I mean, New York Times, Washington Post, some media did a little bit of coverage, but it was not the main story. Had it not been for COVID, I think it definitely would have been. So what we saw up there, we I think we were up in Fukushima in 2016 and 2018, where we did interviews up there with the local mayors. What we saw up there was that even at that time, they were dramatically ramping up the decontamination efforts and trying to, you know, demonstrate that they were doing everything they could to make it safe because they wanted to enlist that narrative to talk about how well the, the state had dealt with the crisis. And then COVID just completely eclipsed that. It pushed it off the stage. So it's not that there weren't remembrances of the 10-year anniversary. Up in Fukushima, there definitely were, but that wasn't a nationwide phenomenon. COVID eclipsed it. And so, you know, at a deeper level, it would have been interesting if the media and, you know, public intellectuals were making some comparisons between the way the government responded to Fukushima and the way that they responded to COVID. I didn't see it. And to me, that's the fact that it just been moved off the stage altogether. Um, that's remarkable. So the political fallout then of the Olympics, uh, you know, I mean, I know you follow this literally minute by minute. Mm -hmm. it, um, the uh, COVID itself, but particularly the way that COVID interfered with the Olympics, that has ended how many political careers in Japan? <laughs> well, not as much as you would think, because at the same time that the government was not really changing their policies, some 80% of people did not want the Olympics to happen up to the time of the Olympics, both at the time of the initial staging of the Olympics and then a year later, most Japanese people were very much opposed to the Olympics. The state just ignored them. I mean, there's multi-billion yen or billion dollar implications for that. And so they pushed forward to hold the Olympics. Okay, so I could understand that. I mean, I didn't necessarily agree. I'm, I'm about the only person I know who really, I have a childhood emotional attachment to the Olympics. I really wanted to go to these Olympics. But they could have made the Olympics safer. They could have made them more effective, you know, just in terms of protecting the athletes. 
And they could have had, look, at the same time that the Olympics were happening, the NBA and professional football, they were starting to have these kind of, um, they were, they were staging games. They were quarantining athletes and they had strict protocols, but they were doing it. So I think that, um, the government just, you see, part of the disconnect here is that we have this stereotype of Japan as being such a highly organized, perfect society in which everything works. You have really functional bureaucracies, all that stuff. And, and all that may be true. But then when it's tested in extremists in these dramatic situations like the Fukushima crisis or COVID, there's a profound gap between the way the government responded and the way we would anticipate that they might. And, you know, I, I just watched the film Minamata, the, the new film that's come out mm-hmm. with a group of students. And I asked my Japanese students what they thought. And this one woman said, I can't believe this happened in Japan. And there was all this, you know, backstory to that assumption and that statement that, you know, these things don't happen in Japan, except when they do, Japan, and maybe as a result, Japan is just not, you know, tested through the experience. But I don't see a lot of lessons learned from Fukushima. And I'm pretty skeptical that after COVID, Japan's going to be ready for the next pandemic. Because remember, we've been here before. SARS-1, when did that break? 2009, 2000. 12, around that time, I think it's 2009. I mean, that was the test run. And that hit Asia disproportionately. That came out of China. And that ran through Japan. That was, I remember vividly thinking at the time that that might shut my university down because we rely on a lot of international students. It was long before the Zoom world, you know, became a, a solution to that problem. But it seemed like those lessons were not learned. So uh, let me just, first of all, I just want to acknowledge, uh, Kyle, you were the editor of a special issue in Japan Focus, and this was building on some of the chapters in the book that you and I worked on together with Ryo Mishineha, Legacies of Fukushima. Also want to just give a shout out to Mark Selden uh, and to Jeff Kingston, and I'm sure there's others who were involved in the sort of editing and production of that, but just special acknowledgement to both of them. And Jeff's an author in the in the book that that you and I co-edited with Ryoma as well. And thanks to them um, for shining that light. And you have an essay in there, which is developing these same ideas that you've been talking about here. So I want to make, make sure people, you, you can find these essays and you can find Kyle's really great essay in there in this uh, special issue of Japan Focus. And, and Scott's uh, as well. Uh, yeah, it was, um, I hate to use words in these weird times like, thrilling because it seems so weird to be excited about anything these days but i got to co-author with one of my heroes robert j lifton and 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 typically lifton in his own way and in sort of a thousand words clarified about 10 things for me and and it was really great to have a chance to write with him but and you encouraged us a lot in that too and thanks for that kyle um i let me turn to um to something else and it's uh, you mentioned your students at various junctures and um how are they Mm -hmm. doing like how are how are teens and 20-somethings in Japan that you know, university students who who are who were adolescents during Fukushima and and now they're they're living through this pandemic at a time when they're supposed to be developing their social lives and their university life, which is really important, I know, in Japan as it is here in South Korea. How are mm-hmm. they coping with this? Yeah, I think it's really difficult to separate out COVID from just the mere experience of having to interact virtually with everyone, which was compelled by the COVID crisis. 
I'm teaching a course called Risk Cultures, um, Pandemic Politics, Natural Disasters, Nuclear Energy. And the first three weeks of the semester, we did a really deep dive into COVID at a time when I was suffering from COVID. And I don't think I would do that again. I mean, next time I teach the course, which I will in the spring, I'll, I'll probably do it at a different time of the semester. It seemed like people were very disaster fatigued. You know, they just, it seemed like piling on that on the one hand, they're dealing with it on a daily personal level. And then they're also studying it, critically examining most the history, the impact, societal impact. It seemed a little bit emotionally overwhelming. And what I've seen in general, not just in that particular class, I'm sure you've seen it as well, is just um, a widespread sense of malaise, you know, what Emil Durkheim would have called anomie, the state of normlessness and confusion. I, I uh, referenced that in that essay that was in Japan Focus. But um, yeah, I think that it, it's been a really hard time for young people. It's been a hard time for all of us, but maybe even more so for them because social relationships are so very important. You know, that's a big part of the university experience. And not getting that has been a real loss. Surely it's had a psychological impact. You're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Kyle Cleveland today. Kyle's a sociologist at Temple University, Japan. We're talking about COVID in, in Japan and Fukushima as well. Uh, another thing I wanted to get to, Kyle, was because um, I know you study popular culture uh, comparatively, and of course within Japan, I um, I couldn't do this for a long, long time because I was talking about COVID every day, and I couldn't manage to watch the um, pandemic films. But I finally, over the last couple of weeks, kind of binge watched a lot of them, um, and uh, several of them, of course, they're set in the United States, but several of them are set. In South Korea, actually, it's a whole genre in South Korea, as well as it is in Japan. And I guess I wish now I had gone back and watched those earlier on, because I think a lot of the early news reporting and cultural reaction to COVID in the United States and in South Korea as well was in some ways conditioned by the images that people already had in their heads, not from previous pandemics, maybe to a certain extent, but from news coverage, which was recycled early in the pandemic and from these films. And the Particularly here, there's a film in South Korea called The Flu, um, which appeared, and I'm going to get the year wrong here, but it's relatively recent. And it struck me that when watching that film, it really was a film about um, government overreach. And it was really, in some ways, to me, a film about Gwangju. I mean, it was about what happens when the government oppresses citizens and uses a, a crisis as, a, as an opportunity uh, to oppress people. And I don't want to be I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but I mean, that theme came through very strongly. So I guess I, guess I wanted, you know, so like what films are you watching? Like what about <laughs> novels, music? Like what's in the cultural mix of Japan that's helping you or other people understand this time? I was just thinking, Scott, forgive me for this. You're starting to sound like a, a boy from Houston, Texas, and the way you're representing <laughs> invasive state action. Um, I wish there would have been a little more invasive state action in Japan. Um, Japan under-responded, in my view, um, although those are obviously very important issues. Well, I think, you know, as with Fukushima, there's a whole subgenre of Fukushima-related films. Um, those are developing. I, I think time will tell whether or not those reach a larger market. Um, I think right now they're hitting niche markets, and they're not necessarily 
you know, part of a national conversation, whether or not they, that gains traction over time. So, for instance, with Fukushima, maybe one of the best films of all things was Shin Godzilla, the new Godzilla, which is an allegory about Fukushima, really. I mean, if you know Fukushima disaster, it's, it's all about Fukushima. Um, I think the best pandemic film is Contagion, the Steve Sonderberg film, which reads almost like a documentary of this. And, you know, I was teaching a course called Disaster Japan in the aftermath um, for a number of years after the Tohoku disasters. And, you know, Asby Brown, one of the co-contributors of, of our volume, both the book and these essays that went to Japan Focus. Asby was the com- country representative for Japan. And he's known Steven Sonderberg for many years. Um, Asby's from New Orleans, Sonderberg's from Baton Rouge. And I was showing that film. I was going to show that film two, three years ago. And Asby said, well, you know, you sure you don't need to get trigger warnings? Maybe you need to get people an opt-out. Maybe you need to get permission. They sign waivers because psychologically that's going to be very impactful. And then now when I showed it to my class, it just, it wasn't exactly banal, but it's like we've, we've seen this movie. We've lived this right. movie. Yeah. It seems so, you would think it were about this crisis. So, you know, time is going to tell what the, the legacies are. So. Um, I await the great books that will be written about this COVID pandemic. The problem with doing that in Japan is you can make the kind of general statement that the state was neglectful, but then when you get down to the details and you really try to demonstrate the mechanisms, exactly how, you know, policies failed, so much of that is obscure and behind the veil of state politics that you just, it's really hard. And, you know, I, I really was keenly interested in this and watching all of these webinars and reading what I could um, that's available about COVID by experts. And it all seemed to be pretty thin. I mean, apologies, I'm probably, you know, exhibit B on that right now with what I'm saying. But it seemed like people were looking through the window obliquely and making certain assumptions or projecting. And there's a kind of a political narrative about a corrupt state. But exactly in what ways? I mean, if you're if you're negligent and it's kind of a, a a negative example of just what the the non-actions taken by the state, that's very different than malicious actions such as we've had in places like, well, the United States under Trump or DeSantos in Florida where they were, you know, suppressing uh, hospital statistics on right. infections and deaths. You know, that's really malicious state policy and it's demonstrable. If you have an investigative journalist who will sort that out, you don't have that in Japan. You don't have that, as we know, our, our colleague Martin Fackler, formerly at the New York Times, he's written about how the domestic press really dropped the ball in not having um, critical investigative journalism. And so you have had people who are inclined to be activists or already have a critical vantage point, which are critical of the state. They'd be critical of any political issue, not just this. But you really, I don't think the seminal work has yet been done on this. We're still in the middle of it. You know, it'll yeah. be interesting where we end up three or five years from now. Yeah, definitely still in the middle of it. But I want to I want to shine a little bit of light on, on, on the approach you've taken with Fukushima and uh, what I think is going to be needed uh, for COVID research. And um, I mean, I think about, you know, People I'm learning from about this, like Malka Older, for example, is a great scholar of international, you know, disaster aid and relief. And then we're just stuck with this sort of national 
set of national stories. We've got a global pandemic. We've got state level, national level statistics. And then we've got, we've fallen in love with these data visualizations, which show us these, you know, curves and graphs nation by nation. Um, and if that's the way we're going to tell COVID, it will be, as you said, it'd be a very thin, very misleading set of stories about um, a pandemic which is highly localized. And I, the reason I mentioned your approach to Fukushima on this is that I remember the first time you know you took me into the field with you, and I said, "Well, what are we going to do?" And in my mind, I thought we're going to we're going to experience whatever Fukushima has to teach us. And I was extremely naive and and poorly informed because I didn't, I somehow was thinking of Fukushima as a monolith. And you're like, well, we're going to go talk yeah. to mayor. We're going to go talk to mayors, mm-hmm. which was of course the right thing to do. And I think that's exactly what we're going to have to do with COVID. And you, you know, to mention the, the United States, I mean, it's 50 pandemics, but even at the sub state level in the United States, you've got to understand that in a state like Florida, Miami might've tried to manage the pandemic pretty well in spite of having um, a homicidal governor. And and I think that getting down into those kinds of regional sub regional, that's just going to take an army of researchers to do that kind of kind of work. But that's how I think we're going to get to it. I think narratives really, you know, people want to hear stories, and they're much more emotionally affecting than statistics and um, a certain kind of academic discourse. You know, I just saw this film with a group of students, Minamata, and immediately after, I was asked them what'd you think? And everyone was so emotionally overwhelmed that we, we couldn't really talk for 15 minutes, you know, cause people were just on the verge of like crying as was I. Um, and so I think there needs to be literary work, films, narratives that are really emotionally evocative to be able to convey what, what's happened here as a lived experience, not just as a concept or as a statistic. I really love Richard Lloyd Perry's book, Ghost of the Tsunami which is about the Okawa Elementary School in Ishinomaki, where some 70 children were killed when they didn't evacuate and the tsunami came in and and killed them all. And he went back and interviewed the family members of those children who had died over the course of a couple of years. And it's just kind of a masterwork for the level of empathy and, and the detail and the sense of lived experience. And, you know, that that's something that I think artists maybe are going to convey much better than academics, you know, something that's more emotionally um, affecting. And I will say that having talked to, you know, my colleague Sachiko Horiguchi and, and her colleagues, these are doctors who are working on a daily basis and their own lives are being threatened and their families are also at risk. And the kind of stories that they told and the kind of research that they're doing, I just, I hadn't heard anyone say anything like that because it's at such an abstracted level, like Japan is some monolith, some right. unified entity. Well, what about regional differences, ethnic differences, you know, um, age stratification, the schools, work organizations, et cetera? There, there's got to be a lot more nuance there. So it'll come in time. But what we've seen with, you know, you, Scott, talked a lot about the slow disaster, how these disasters have long tails that predate the actual disaster itself, and then they languish over time. And, and, you know, the impacts can be felt over years, if not decades. We're seeing that with Fukushima. We've certainly seen that with Chernobyl. You saw that, you know, one of the classic studies in 
disaster studies by Kai Erickson about the Buffalo Creek flood in Appalachia, where a flood ran through and wiped out those valleys. A lot of that work was done 10 years after the disaster, and it, and it takes, you know, that much time. Um, I remember Prime Minister Khan had said that the Fukushima disaster was the most significant crisis since World War II. Well, we're still learning about that. You know, that that's something that that um, that shadow cast a very long legacy. So I, I think we're going to be, well, I hope that we're on the downside, um, maybe the end state of, of this pandemic is starting to become endemic, right. where, you know, we're going to get booster shots and we've started to normalize it to some extent by adjusting the way we calibrate risk and how much we're willing to endure. So these things go through stages and it's hard to make sense of something. Well, I'd say this in, in, in the moment, we certainly make a different sense of it than we do retrospectively when we look back at it. That lens is a very different kind of lens. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today has been a special episode at 5.30 p.m. Japan time, 5.30 p.m. Korea time. Please join me tomorrow, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Um, sometimes when I'm doing Asian and North American episodes in the same day, I have to clarify what day I'm talking about as well. So please join me on Tuesday, November 23rd at 6 p.m. Eastern time. New York time for my conversation with a medical student or just recently graduated medical student, Thomas Irwin. He's going to talk about the experience of being a medical student and a med school graduate in the time of COVID. And I just want to um, just sigh of relief again that you're okay. And just thanks a lot for this conversation, Kyle, as usual, it's illuminating. And, uh, and you always tolerate me telling long stories too, which I appreciate. So uh, thanks for that. And uh, good to talk with you, man. Uh, great to talk with you, Scott. I, I always learn from you, and I, I appreciate, uh, you know, the project that we worked on Fukushima brought me into your field of study, which I was a bit of an interloper into, but uh, I learned a heck of a lot in the last decade from you and your colleagues and the people that we've worked with. So, unfortunately, I never thought, <laughs> who would have thought that something could eclipse the Fukushima and the terrible disasters of 2011? It's just the most implausible thing. It's amazing. Thanks for listening to COVID Calls, everybody. Stay healthy. We'll see you next time.